This is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest this week, Rachel Friedman, is a Brooklyn-based travel journalist whose work has been featured in the New York Times, creative nonfiction, and the best women's travel writing. Her first memoir, The Good Girl's Guide to Getting Lost, was a target breakout book and was later selected by Goodreads as one of the best travel books of 2011. In this episode of The Trip That Changed Me, Rachel and I discussed the journey that inspired The Good Girl's Guide to Getting Lost. It was 2002, and Rachel, a student at the time, was on a bit of an identity quest in Galway, Ireland. From there, she would form a friendship with a free-spirited Australian woman named Carly, embark on a multi-continent adventure, and reshape her sense of self. Rachel Friedman, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to discuss this epic trip that you took. Me too. So I usually like to start with talking about kind of childhood. And I know that you were a talented and dedicated violist. Yes. Um, why did you pick up that particular instrument? I had been a kid who loved music from a very early age. My parents were music lovers. Um, and so I played the guitar first, actually, because that's what my dad played. But in middle school sorry, in elementary school, there was um, an opportunity to pick a string instrument and everybody else was running to the violin and the cello. And I think for some reason, I thought if I chose the viola, that would be really special and different and unique. <laughs> so it's a very superficial response. I just thought it was a cool instrument and I get a lot of attention from the teacher if I played it. And then I ended up falling in love with playing. And at that point, were you imagining that you were going to make a career out of it? I didn't imagine I'd make a career out of it for a few years, which actually I was still fairly young. I went to an intense performing arts camp in Michigan when I was 11. Like and, a summer camp? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, it was there that I realized the magnitude of talent in the world, you know, um, how many people my age were incredible musicians and working very hard. And I felt like that was a tipping point where it went from this is something I have natural ability at doing and I like to, oh, I'm, I want to get good. I want to get really good. I want this to be what I do forever. So your, your competitive nature kicks into that. <laughs> yeah, it did for sure. And so then I know that when you were a freshman at college, uh, you decided to abandon the viola, which was a massive change of course. And yeah, I'm just wondering, I guess, what, what, what were the doubts that were brewing at that point that led you to that decision? What really led me to that decision is that I was incredibly unhappy in college studying music. It had gone from being the thing that gave me the most joy um, to the hardest thing in my life. I was practicing for hours a day and I was at a liberal arts school, but I was in the school for the arts within that university. So we had a very specialized program and we were in 
music training classes, you know, sight singing and composition classes or orchestra rehearsals all day long. And then we would go into these basement practice rooms and practice for hours and hours on end. And I realized in college where I had been the best musician where I had come from, or certainly among the best, that I was all of a sudden very much not. And it dawned on me that it would take it was taking so much for me to try to get to a place where I really could be a professional musician that um, the stress and the anxiety of that really kind of ruined playing for me. And I just thought, I'm going to have to give up everything else in order to keep pursuing this. And I'm not happy anymore. So it seemed clear that it was time to make a change. Did you feel just very lost at that point because it had been such a big part of your identity up until that moment. Yes, I felt very lost. I, um, when you have a sense from a very early age of what you want to do, and that defines your entire childhood, and then all of a sudden you're a 19 year old um, with with no clue anymore. That can feel um, very disruptive. And you know, college is that time when everyone's figuring out what they want to do, but. I had kind of felt like I already got this covered, you know, it's no problem. So smug. <laughs> so smug in my view of where my life was headed. And so, um, yeah, it was a very upending thing to all of a sudden have no clue what came next. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a classic quarter life crisis situation, right. which right. I totally relate to. Like, especially as the end of college is approaching and you're thinking, okay, like, what's next? How am I going to transition into adulthood effectively? Um, and it can be especially difficult if, yeah, something that you've been aiming for for so long suddenly seems out of reach. Yep. Um, so your instinct, I guess, after during this phase was to kind of seek a change of scenery and go on like an identity quest. So you booked yeah. a ticket to Ireland. Why was Ireland the place that you wanted to retreat to? Yeah, so I... College was, you know, I was ticking along in college and by junior year, everyone is asking you what you're going to do when you graduate. And I was so sick of hearing that question and had no answer. And I don't really even know why it occurred to me to leave for four months and go to Ireland other than I just had this feeling like I have to get away from my own life for a little while. And I had been reading a lot of Irish literature in college. So um, the English major in me found Ireland very appealing. I'd been like, I'd taken a whole course on um, Joyce's Ulysses and been reading various other Irish writers. And the other thing about Ireland at the time was that I could get a student work visa there. They spoke English. Uh, It was a relatively cheap flight. You know, it was all kind of practical logistical things that made me decide on Ireland. But I'm so glad I did because I I had the most amazing time and fell completely in love with the city that I landed in in Ireland. You told our producers that you didn't really do a whole lot of research heading into the trip. Was that was that like you to not be very well prepared? Or was it just an example of kind of the spontaneity that you were craving at the time? It was not like me to not be very prepared. I think I really surprised myself by even deciding to go to Ireland. And in some ways, even though I bought the ticket and I knew it was happening, I was in a little bit of denial about what would actually happen once I landed there. I just thought like, (laughs) 
oh, it'll all work out, which like spoiler alert, it does all work out when you buy the plane ticket and you land somewhere. (laughs) You know, I still I really believe that. Um, So I'm sure I had bought, you know, a guidebook or two, but I certainly hadn't done when I think now of research as someone who's done a lot of travel writing in the years since that trip. I, you know, I'm someone who does a heavy amount of research about where I'm going. And this certainly didn't qualify as that. I knew I was going to fly into Dublin. And so, in, and in fact, I had done some, you know, reading of guidebooks about Dublin in particular, but I ended up not staying in Dublin. So when I went to Galway after three days in Dublin there, I really had no sense of um, the city or anything about it. Yeah. So Galway is like a sweet little harbour city on the west coast of Ireland. Um, and that one felt, it felt much more your speed. So why do you think that was? And also, did you know that it was its European capital of culture for next year? So it's like, it's trending. So this is very <laughs> topical, this podcast. Perfect. This is what I've been planning these past, past decade, you know, longer than that. It's like, going to be always time to shine. Yeah. <laughs> when I landed in Dublin, I was completely overwhelmed. I had never traveled. I had traveled a bit, you know, with my family. I had gone um, on a temple youth group trip to uh, Israel when I was 15. That was very formative. That was for six weeks and was with peers, but obviously had adults chaperoning it. But Ireland was the first time that I had gone somewhere really on my own for any extended period of time and certainly internationally gone anywhere alone. And when I landed in Dublin, um, I just felt like the city was too overwhelming for me. I'd never stayed in a hostel. I had like, and then all of a sudden I was staying in a co-ed hostel and like there were guys sleeping in my room. And I was like, (laughs) what is, you know, even for like, I feel like a liberal college student, I was just like, what is happening here? Mm -hmm. Just felt like it felt like a lot, I guess, for a 20 year old me. And also the city felt, even though I don't feel this way about Dublin now, the city felt just big and cold. And, you know, in terms of like, I didn't know anyone and I had no idea where to start finding a job. And when I was saying all of this to someone, another woman who was in the hostel, she had just come from Galway. And she's like, you really need to like just take a bus, go out there. Galway is like, you know, what like the, the most Irish part of Ireland. And it's a university town and it's really quaint, but there's plenty of stuff going on. You'll be able to find a job. So that's what kind of it was honestly just someone's suggestion, um, casual suggestion. And I was like, great, I'm out of here. And I booked a bus for like 6 a.m. the next day and fled. Perfect timing for the recommendation. Yeah. Um, So while you were in Galway, you come across an Australian woman named Carly, who would become one of your closest friends and the star of your novel, The Good Girl's Guide to Getting Lost. Was it a bit of a meet cute situation? How did you you find each other? I guess I wrote it probably as one. Um, And she loved that she's being called the star of that book. Um, So she, I was in another hostel in Galway and someone had put up an ad in an internet cafe that they were looking for a roommate in a flat that was across the river. And I went to go look at it. And that's how I met Carly. Um, I didn't get the sense she particularly liked me at first, which was, you know, <laughs> I suppose, make I don't know if that makes it more or less of a, a meet cute kind of movie <laughs> montage <laughs> situation. But um, I felt like she sort of tolerated me at first, but then I slowly won her over. And yeah, we became 
very close and we ended up traveling for years together um, and are still very close. So what did the two of you get up to in Galway? How long were you there before you embarked on your around the world trip? Our time there only overlapped, I think, for six or seven weeks, actually, in Galway. And then she was going to do an around, she was on an around the world trip, which I, which completely blew my mind. I was like, you're gone for a year. She's essentially taking a gap year. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is not a lot of, this is something that not a lot of Americans do, or at least that I knew um, at the time. They were not taking time off from college or in between high school and college, but it's something that's very common for other countries, right. um, yeah. for the youth in other countries, especially when there is a you know strong middle class. Obviously, you have to have a certain amount of income to do something like that. But in Australia, it's extremely common. Um, and she came from a long line of badass women travelers. Her mom had been uh, someone who did long trips by herself solo, you know, decades earlier, her grandmother had taken an around the world trip at one point. I mean, so I I was completely enamored of, you know, travel Carly. And she and I in Galway were both working most of the time we were together. We spent a lot of time together um, in between the number of waitressing and bartending jobs that we had, um, various other ways we were trying to cobble together a living but then she took off and I stayed in Galway for another couple of months after that. And we ended up meeting again on the like next leg of that journey. So you were, it was the, during the summer that you embarked on this mm-hmm. trip. And then how, how long did you end up traveling for in total? So I finished that trip. Carly tried very hard to convince me not to go back to college. And <laughs> <Bad> um, <laughs> she's like, take the gap year. It's great. You get student discounts everywhere. You know, like do it while you can, while everything's cheap and you can work in other countries. And um, I floated that idea to my parents who very quickly were like, absolutely not. You are coming back here. We will come get you if we have to. Like you are coming back here. So I went back to school, I finished and got my degree. And then I began what was a period of, I guess, maybe three years of travel, but involved um, having to come back home for certain periods of time to work and save up money again and then go abroad. Amazing. And where did you, where did the two of you go together? We first, not all of that travel was with Carly, but a good portion of it was. So after I graduated... And still had no idea what to do. Um, Carly was, you know, in my ear and said, come to Australia. Um, Come here. You can stay with my family. You can travel around. Australia is a huge country. There's lots to see, lots to do. So I went over to Sydney and um, arrived on her doorstep. I'm sure her parents were like, great. We already have have three kids. Why do we now need another one? Um, But Carly's parents... Um, really became a second family to me. And I stayed with them for several months and worked in Sydney. Again, I worked at, I worked uh, bartending and at a cafe where I'd like take the bus in, you know, 5am and did that. And in between working, uh, we explored Sydney and did little trips, you know, here and there that were drivable weekend kind of stuff. And then I took a couple months after that and I went up the East Coast and to the north in Darwin and then like came back down through Sydney. Um, and then Carly and I and I, I did that on my own. But then Carly and I went to um, South America together. 
after that. So you went on, obviously, to write a book about your adventures with Carly. I did. Um, <laughs> I love that it's this ode to female friendship, but I just wanted to find out how important you think it is to travel with friends as opposed to, say, a rom- romantic partner. Like, how do those two experiences, how are they different? Yeah, I feel I should, like, properly plug the book and tell you it's called The Good Girl's Guide to Getting Lost. Um, <laughs> and yes, uh, I wrote it after we had come back from this adventure. and. I didn't know at the time that it would become a book, but I was writing a lot about those travels and um, I was in an MFA program and um, was lucky enough that, yeah, it, it turned into turned into a travel memoir. So in terms of female friendship and traveling with your friends as opposed to romantic partners, I think there's a lot of value in different iterations of travel. So there's of course, value in traveling with someone you're romantically involved in. I mean, that is the true test of a relationship, in my view. Like, you have to do that at some point <laughs> to know if you're really in it with that person because, you know, how you act when you miss your flight or you get food poisoning or whatever obstacle you face when you travel, you know, how you work as a team or not can be very revealing. Um, but I felt like, there was a lot written about that kind of travel and there wasn't a lot written about for Americans and American women in particular traveling on your own or with a friend. For me, any kind of travel that involves fewer people as opposed to a great big group, you know, is, is my preference. Um, and in particular, you know, traveling with a friend is like like traveling with a romantic partner is a very intense bonding experience. And you go through a lot with that person. And there's a lot of intimacy and a lot of frustration. And, um, you know, I think those travels are the reason Carly and I are still so close to this day. It just was an incredibly solidifying thing for our friendship and a thing I think um, changes, changes you and changes the person that you're on that trip with. I also think, you know, it can just be a very different experience as far as you know who you encounter, the kind of, of the kind of things that you end up doing together. Like when I've been with my with my husband forever and I did a gap year when I was 18, 19 without him. So I did six, I worked for six months, saved up and then did around the world for six months. Um, and I went with a friend and it was very different because we, I feel like when you're traveling with a peer, you end up meeting loads of people. Whereas maybe if you're a couple, people give you your distance a little bit. There's sort of this perception that, oh, they just want to be together. You know, they, they don't want to be interrupted. They're having their romantic time. You know, it's just Definitely. a very different thing traveling with a friend. Definitely. And that's the difference between traveling. There's also a difference, you know, traveling with a man as opposed to traveling right. with two women. I mean, you experience a country completely differently. And I've had, you know, I went to India with my brother a few years ago. And my brother is like a six foot three former football player. Um, and we would walk the streets and I would feel like, wow, India is so safe. Like, what is everyone talking about? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, not that I didn't feel it was safe when I was walking alone, but I made sure to like get up most mornings and like take a walk by myself because I wanted to have that experience as well. And it's a very different experience because you're looked at and people feel like they can, you know, um, they you feel more vulnerable Mm -hmm. as a woman on your own. Like that's just the reality of it. You feel more vulnerable. 
you can sense that you're more vulnerable, but also as either a woman on your own or two women, I think that you're also welcomed into communities of women much more easily than if you're in any sort of group that has a man. Um, So women really look out for women in foreign countries. And I felt many times very looked out, um, very looked after as a traveler in different countries. And I was on my own and with Carly. That's interesting. And there was actually a romantic storyline in the book too, but you didn't choose to focus on that as much. Yeah. So, so many of us had these kind of deep and intricate friendships, these bonds that last decades and potentially even a lifetime. It sounds like you guys are still very close. Yeah. But yeah, they aren't quite a lot of the same level of value as romantic partnerships. So I wanted to ask whether, you know, friendship has always been this important valued form of love in your life. Yeah, it has for sure. Um, I have family that lives not not in the city and you know some of them closer some of them farther away but I have always been someone who has made friends family um and feels like the people who are my you know my soulmate friends you know I would do anything for them and um I think they feel the same way and that has always been of primary importance to me to cultivate those relationships above and beyond any romantic relationships and I do write a little bit about the romantic relationship that um, that occurred during the, the course of the timeline of the book, but I really didn't want to focus on it, both because I didn't feel that was the story of that trip. And also, there's just plenty of other stuff out there that has the romantic, the like rom-com <laughs> angle, you mm-hmm. know, and especially with um, travel narratives by women, there's lots of stuff where it feels like even if that isn't the kind of takeaway of um, the journey that it kind of ends with a romance, you know, as though like the romance is like the reward right. or or the entire <laughs> trip is about, you know, um, being with your partner. So I felt like that was covered and that wasn't as interesting to me as the female friendship part of it. Love that. Um, and what is what is Carly doing now? You guys still stay in touch, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Carly is in Australia um, and she's been traveling around with her son. We both have kids. Her son is a few years older than mine. So they are, Carly is still like fearless Carly, you know, um, <laughs> like on the road at the moment with him exploring. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. So when you finally made it back home, did you feel like the path forward was clear in your mind? No. <laughs> no. Um, is, does anyone ever feel that way fully? Like, no. Maybe, and that would probably be boring if we, oh, if we knew exactly what was, you know, going to happen next. Um, when I came back from that trip, I was... I was in this relationship that was at first a long distance relationship and then he moved here. So um, I went from being very restless and unmoored uh, for my early 20s to all of a sudden being very rooted in New York City and having a partner and, you know, working on a writing career. And I don't know that I had any grand plan, but I just was doing um, what I love and working hard. And, you know, then things fall into place a little bit and don't a little bit and you figure it out. And it sounded like, you know, you learned so much about yourself on this trip. Reflecting back on it, in what ways do you feel like this journey changed you? Oh, in 
fundamental ways. Um, I really feel like I'm a different person after having traveled in the best possible ways. I mean, the, the first thing is that I did not think of myself as courageous in any way before I traveled. I, I thought of myself as kind of sheltered and someone who played it safe and someone who was kind of rigid and the traveler version of me imploded all of that and made me realize um, that I could tackle things on my own and that I was independent and, you know, um, and curious. And I just, I liked the traveler version of me so much. I think that's why I kept going for so long because it brought something out in me that I didn't know was there. And then you come home and, you know, you, you take that with you in a lot of ways, that worldview. Um, and of course, travel just broadens your scope of the world and of humanity. And I think makes you a more empathetic person. So it's a positive thing, in my view, in all sorts of ways. Of course, it's been complicated now by the kind of like Instagram travel, and you know, everyone kind of trying to document every moment of it, which I think for me, I I sound now like the old guy who's like, get off my lawn, but um, (laughs) feels a little bit antithetical to what I think travel in its in its um, most ideal form provides, which is a sense of being really present in the moment and experiencing things in a slow and intentional way and connecting with people that you're on the journey with. And some of all of that still happens, I suppose, when you're documenting it. But I really think it interrupts a lot of the journey to be endlessly um, recording it and and posting it. I love that you say that you love the traveler version of you because I think a lot of people will relate to that. Especially even last night, I was talking to my girlfriends and you were saying about how you can have these moments of really you know these clarifying moments of perspective when you're away, and it can feel like everything has changed. And then somehow it's very different, difficult to hold on to that feeling when you return home, and it's just back to the daily grind. Did you have any tips on how to kind of keep those perspectives? It's a very, it's very slippery. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you come back and things are different. And, and also no one really wants to, unless someone has traveled for long periods of time, they're like bored, you know, by Mm -hmm. your travel stories. Like, okay, (laughs) I don't hear about your, you know, your food poisoning in Bolivia (laughs) one more time. Like, I'm good. I think that this is easier said than done. But one of the ways to hold on to that is to cultivate that sense of curiosity and wonder that travel brings wherever you are. And Mm -hmm. I do think that's possible because so much again of travel of, of being a traveler of experiencing other cultures, other people is about being present and listening and Mm -hmm. observing and you can do all of that wherever you are. I teach travel writing sometimes and I make my students, their first story is about um, the town they grew up in. I make them write about where they're from, you know, because we think of it as this place that we know and we don't. And especially in in some place like New York City, I mean, my goodness, Mm -hmm. you can really cultivate that sense of slow of slowness and presence and curiosity um, because there's always something new here. So you have to find a way to adventure in your own backyard. 
Oh, I like that. Be a hometown traveler. Yeah. So you have another book coming out December this year. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Very exciting. Um, it's called And Then We Grew Up. And it was inspired by the choice that you actually made during during college to give up the viola. Can you tell us more about the book's concept? Yeah, yeah, it occurs to me I've clearly been obsessing over not becoming a musician now for so long. <laughs> I have two books that start with it. Um, yeah, so I um, was this you know serious childhood musician, and I even though I quit, I really never stopped a little part of me fantasizing about what that life would be like had I become a musician. And much later on in my early 30s, as a struggling writer in New York, I found myself thinking again, not only about that time and the kind of uh, feeling of, oh, I, I would, I might have had this whole other life had I pursued music, but also facing this gap as a writer between what I thought my writing life would look like. And it's much more complicated reality. So <laughs> anyone, you know, who, in the, who has pursued any artistic endeavor, and I actually think plenty of other endeavors, you know, trying to run your own business, um, whatever it is where you've tried to professionalize your passion. Mm -hmm. At some point, you hit um, a place where you're kind of taking stock and um, evaluating, you know, do I keep going? Um, what defines creative success for me? Um, and with writing, it didn't feel like music in that I didn't think I was going to give up on writing ever. I, I knew by then that it had already endured through so much. I was always going to write. Um, but I had a lot of questions about, you know, what part of my income was going to come from writing because I was really cobbling together an income was in a lot of ways, like with music, you know, unhappy in the kinds of writing projects I had to take on in order to pay the rent that were not what I had envisioned for myself, you know, as like a, as an author of books and a long form travel writer. Um, so I hit this kind of critical point where I realized if I don't figure out what I really want out of my writing life and like what really matters to me and what kind of artistic life I want to lead, I'm going to be unhappy <laughs> and um, I don't want to be unhappy. So I tracked down uh, a group of my former friends from that summer camp who had all had very specific notions of what they wanted to do when they grew up. And they were actors and dancers, musicians, visual artists. And I had conversations with them about how their artistic ambitions had or had not panned out. And the reason I went back to those people is because it feels like we get so much, you know, advice, like internet advice about success, achieving greatness, yes. becoming an artist, what that looks like, you know, and, and we're constantly reading profiles of people who become successes where it just feels like it's this linear thing. Like yes. they faced an obstacle and overcame it and then had a big break and like, that's it. Now they're famous and they're, you know, and uh, they're successful and that's what you should aspire to. Right. And it just didn't feel like I had any models for what the majority of us in creative careers face in those of us swimming in the middle who aren't, you know, haven't given up, but aren't Beyonce, um, which is most of us, most you know? of us about what it really takes to endure as a creative person. 
Um, so that became this second book. So it was its own sort of quest. I'm also obsessed with a good quest um, <laughs> in both of these books. And um, it was a really a fascinating book to write. I relate to so much of what you just said. Excellent. <laughs> and I think, as you say, it's important to have these stories because we just don't have access to them very often. And yeah, I mean, this is the second time I'm going to reference Big Magic on this podcast, mm. but I assume you've read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. Something that really resonated with me was she was talking about how um, for years and years she worked jobs at bars in order to kind of moonlight as a writer and kind of make do that stuff on the side, do that creativity on the side. And she was basically just saying, you know, sometimes you shouldn't burden the thing that you love with paying the bills. You don't have to see it that way. You know, there is yep. there is space for all of us to be creative in our own ways. And it doesn't have, you don't have to be a best-selling author to have your own version of success. Yep. That's why I think it's really important to drill down and to come to a very personal definition of, you know, what do what do I want from mm-hmm. my writing life or from my painting or from my dancing? What really at its heart, not like, what do I think I should want? What do I think my creative life should look like? But what in a sort of way that balances idealism and realism can my life look like while keeping this artistic passion in it? And yeah, I think a lot of times you have to divorce your income from your creativity, you know, you have two choices. You can, this is not my quote, and I wish I remembered whose it was, but it was essentially, you can write what the world wants, or you can write what you want and find another way to pay your rent. Now, sometimes those two things overlap. If you're really lucky, you know, what mm-hmm. you want to write is what the world wants at that specific moment, but that's some lottery stuff, you know, um, you can't predict that. And so you have to kind of make a choice at some point about which path you want to take. For me, I did take a part-time day job to support my writing. It's the best thing I ever did for my writing because it allowed me to work on what I want. And that is what I realized through the course of writing that book was the most important thing to me. I had thought there was an ego-driven thing. Oh, to call myself a writer, I have to be a full-time writer. I have to earn my full income from writing that's ego. That is not like you talk, you know, that was not me talking. That was some sort of expectations, you know, inner critical voice happening. And when I really thought about it, I realized, no, I want to write whatever I want. I don't want to have to worry about how I'm going to make my rent. And I'm okay with having fewer hours in the day to, to write if it means that the hours I do have can be spent in the way I want them. I think, um, you know, a lot of people dream of writing their own travel memoir, their version of A Good Girl's Guide to Getting Lost. Do you have any tips for those people? Yeah, I get this question a lot. Put your professor hat on now. (laughs) (laughs) So publishing a book is a complicated endeavor. And there are a lot of variables that are outside of your control. The best thing I think someone who wants to write a travel memoir can do is, is write it. Um, so, you know, a lot of people will come to me with an idea, but they haven't actually written anything or, um, you know, they're more focused on building their platform. And yes, that is one way to sell a book. Like if you have a huge social media platform, Mm -hmm. the, to me, um, this feels a little bit disillusioning, but the, the reality is editors and marketing people at publishing houses are having that conversation about how many Twitter followers you have. It does actually matter. Now, that's 
a totally, you know, like valid way sort of into that world. If, if that's what feels good for you. Um, if you're like me and you know, your happy place is like in a quiet room with your computer writing, you know, and like, that's really what makes you happy is the writing part of it. You should write the travel memoir and worry after, you know, what's going to happen to it in terms of being published. Mm -hmm. Um, so no, I don't have a good answer other than there's no quick path. Um, and you really have to, I think, need, you have to feel like you need that story to be told in order to, to get through the writing of a book. Because if you're doing it because you want to be a person who has a book, you know, it, you just won't endure that process. The, the, it takes a long time to write a book. So see, like, that's, that's my advice. You want to write a travel book? sit down and write one. Right. You don't need anyone else's permission to be awesome, to make your art. You do not need anyone else's permission. You don't even need anyone else's permission to publish that travel memoir when you're done. You could self-publish or you could put it on Medium. There are lots and lots of (laughs) options. Right. So I think, you know, what gets in our way the most is us. We we overcomplicate it. Being a writer is about sitting in a chair each day and putting words on a page. That's it. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Before you go, I have a few kind of quicker questions I'd love your answers to. Sure. First up, this is something we ask everybody on the show. What is the one thing that you believe every person should experience in their lifetime? Traveling alone. Traveling solo is something I believe every person should experience. And anywhere from um, a day trip by yourself, I mean, overnight, it does not need to be an around the world trip, but... I think everyone should go someplace alone and have to be in their own company, navigating a new um, city uh, and experience. Agreed. Risky, but also fulfilling. Well, not risky, but it feels scary, maybe. feels scary. But actually, it's a very fulfilling thing to do. Yeah. Um, if you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? Oh, my gosh. If I could teleport anywhere just for the day. I really love Buenos Aires. And I haven't been back in years. And um, I did not have a prepared answer to this question, but that is the first city that popped into my head. And I would go there and I would drink lots of wine and um, (laughs) eat lots of great food and listen to tango and um, go to all the amazing bookstores in Buenos Aires. I just am picturing myself in that city having a wonderful, leisurely, artsy day. Lovely. Um, do you have a trick for getting over jet lag? Yeah, don't drink on the plane. <laughs> Seriously. I love drinking on the plane. I know. <laughs> we all do. But I'm telling you, if you want the real trick, it's it's not and it's not even limited to booze. I actually try not to eat anything or drink anything but water on the plane. And that has been the biggest trick for me. <sighs> that's mm-hmm. hard to give up. But Good red, luck, everyone. Red wine in a movie is that's my <laughs> uh-huh. that's my go to. <laughs> yep. Uh, I know it was some time ago, but do you have a top tip for things to do or see in Galway? Galway is filled with amazing music. So almost um, any bar you walk into will have live music on a given night. That would be what I can think of. I have no up-to-date travel tips, but I can tell you that Galway is still alive with um, fiddlers and (laughs) all sorts of other musicians playing both on the street and in the pubs. What's a destination that's maybe not so popular with tourists or maybe that is even relatively unknown that you'd recommend? 
if we're since we've been talking so much about Ireland, this isn't necessarily not touristy, but the Aran Islands in Ireland, um, which is a short boat ride from Galway, um, is an amazing spot where uh, people are still speaking Gaelic for the most part. Actually, when I was there, I was told that that's often where they send the university students for Gaelic immersion. Mm. Um, it's a really beautiful, quaint uh, little place. And you can do a day trip, but the less touristy thing to do would be to stay overnight. And there aren't a lot of places to stay. And that means there aren't a lot of tourists on the island and something you have to make sure to book before you go. But when that last boat leaves for the day with all the tourists, it's really just you and the locals. And it's phenomenal. Great tip. Um, what is the one thing that you never travel without? An eye mask. I'm not a good sleeper, so I need to have sensory deprivation of an eye mask and earplugs at all times when I sleep. Same. <laughs> What's been the most interesting food that you've tried while traveling? I've eaten all sorts of interesting slash disgusting things on my travels. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, what would be like, you know, like you're at the market and there's like frog's legs. You know, I've done I've done all that stuff. Frog's legs is a good answer. Okay, great. <laughs> Let's stick with frog's legs. Yep. I feel good about that. What have you been surprised to learn about yourself through traveling? That I can go with the flow. Um, that's not something I knew about myself before travel. I think travel turned me into much less of a control freak, which is a good thing for life because there's very little that we control in the end. It's an illusion. It is. <laughs> We're on the matrix. <laughs> Window or aisle seat? Window, 100%. And why is that? I like to be able to see out the window and I also feel it's more comfortable for sleeping. I agree. I mean, preferably window seat with the other two seats empty. <laughs> Absolutely. That's living the travel dream right there. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite thing to do on a plane? Watch movies. Yeah? Yep. I watch, I can watch them the entire trip. I mean, one after another. It's pathetic. I like to do rom-coms or, you know, something that's a bit lighter. Absolutely. And I also love to cry on the plane. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean... <laughs> Especially as New Yorkers, you know, we we get very good at crying in all sorts of public spaces. <laughs> and because like everyone's just crowded in, you know, you cry on the subway, you cry <laughs> walking to work. But yes, and the like a plane feels like, again, one of those private public spaces where um, especially if you don't know anyone, it's great. You're just the emotional person <laughs> in the window seat watching your rom-com and crying. <laughs> Oh, Rachel, it's been a delight to have you. Thank um, you so much. And where can people find you online? Yeah, I have a website, rachel-friedman.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. And then if you Google the books, you'll find me in all the bookstores where books are sold. Perfect. I'm excited to follow your adventures from this point on. Thank you so much. It was great meeting you. And this was really fun. Rachel's new book, And Then We Grew Up, on creativity, potential, and the imperfect art of adulthood, was released in December 2019. It's a journey through the many ways to live an artistic life, 
From the flashy and famous to the quiet and steady, full of unexpected insights about creativity and contentment. If you're a creative person, which you are, because we all are, then go pick up a copy from your local bookseller. One more thing before you go about your day. Full-Time Travel recently added an amazing travel advisor to our team, and I want to take a minute here to shout her out because booking through an advisor is such a travel hack, it's crazy more people don't know about it. Her name is Chelsea Martin. She's an affiliate of Embark and Virtuoso, and she's also a travel influencer in her own right. You can find her on Instagram at Passport to Friday. Chelsea has amazing relationships with hotels, tour operators, and locals all over the world. And not only will she sort the logistics and take all the stressful planning off your hands, she also scores insane perks at no extra cost to you. Think room upgrades, free cocktails, spa discounts, and late checkouts to name just a few. So whether you want to book an extravagant honeymoon or just want to secure the best hotel for your budget, Chelsea has you covered. Just drop her an email at chelsea at fttadvisor.com. That's chelsea at fttadvisor.com and start planning your dream trip with VIP perks today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. I'll be back in two weeks time to share more inspiring travel stories. And in the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and subscribe so we can keep this adventure going. 